0: This is Chronic Victory Podcast number 48. I'm your host, David Montez. But before we dig in, I want to remind everybody about our affiliates and our friends at The Healthy Place. You can go to findyourhealthyplace.com, use coupon code VICTORY, save 20% all the time. Shipping is free as well. Thanks to those guys for sweetening the deal for the listeners and the followers. You can also go to wildtheory.com for any of your CBD needs use coupon code VICTORY, save 20% all the time there also. These people are kind and they know a little something about health in the natural way. Speaking of knowing a little something, I find that people, humans, know things like we know things, but we really don't know anything. If you think about the universe as a whole and even what's beyond, we really don't know much. And I have a special guest here today. She is A retired law enforcement veteran with 25 years of experience. That includes being a police officer and eventually working for the FBI. She's an author of at least two books so far and had a remarkable experience she is willing to share with us today. She is Lily Leonardi. Hi, Lily.
1: Hi, David. Thank you for uh, an opportunity to chat with you. I'm looking forward to sharing with you and your audience.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I know it's Um, an honor. I I know it's not easy ever to, you know, most about what you're going to be talking about, it's not easy to Mm -hmm. talk about. It's not easy to keep retelling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe there's some ease, like it gets a little easier to tell it more and more often, but it's still, I understand the, the mental and even the physical kind of, effects that it has on, on you. when you, you retell a story or something, especially that bothered you Mm -hmm. um, or had a profound impact on your life. So thanks for being here and actually going through it all again. Personally, I think that's courageous and I don't have any reason to doubt anything you're going to say. And this is the JFZ on Chronic Victory Podcast. This is a judgment free zone. And there's going to be some clear, I mean, maybe it's not clear at first why you're even here to some people, but I think it's, to me i think it's obvious since it can help so why don't you would you mind telling us about kind of your who you are and you're, you're becoming a police officer you have kind of a unique story about especially like given what year it was when you were in the academy and such
1: sure thank you well um i uh began my career in law enforcement in 1984 um, i was on a small department outside of in pittsburgh I was the first female that had applied for the job and ended up being appointed as police officer. And back then, everybody's going to cringe, especially with a lot of the issues we have with law enforcement right now, and about the lack of appropriate training and maybe reflection. You know, about uh, various pieces related to our jobs. And so, back then, you could work for up to a year before they put you through the academy. Mm-hmm. All you needed to have. With CPR certification, uh, first aid certification, and be pro- pro- proficient in a firearm, so I got hired September sixteenth. I never went to the academy till the following February, so I was on the street what almost six about six months before that, and it was uh, it was unique in that. Um, It was harder in the squad room than it was on the street, if that makes sense uh, back then.
0: yeah, Uh,
1: There were, I think, 15 officers and there were still dispatchers back then. Uh, Most of the men in leadership positions were not favorable toward women. And the struggle was pretty hurtful, I would say, initially. Um, If I didn't have the dad I had who... I came from a family of 10 children. There were five boys and five girls. And we were only about 12 years apart from oldest to youngest. And when I was about, I don't know, 12, maybe in seventh grade, my mother went back to college and never quit until she had dual doctorates in music and theater, and she became a professor. So my dad, if he would have been alive, he would have been about 97 now. So it will tell you like the kind of human being he was. He told us that our mother was not only a wife and a mother, but she was a woman that needed to be fulfilled too. And this was her journey. So that's kind of the family I was raised in. So I wasn't prepped for some of the men that I came in contact. Now, don't get me wrong. There were wonderful men there too, that pulled you forward, helped you train, made it possible for um, you to achieve and become and learn. So with that, that was helpful. So when I went into the academy in 1985, February of that year, I was the only female in the academy among 32 men. Most of the men were supportive, some were not. Those that were not were very verbal about being a female and my in, my being incapable of serving in the law enforcement profession. They spent more time telling me that than I, I probably even recall at this point. But um, the academy... Although it wasn't easy, it became a proving ground where I began to really see what I might be able to achieve in in the course of my career. Um, it was a childhood dream. Uh, I had two two thoughts when I was a kid to either be a pediatrician or in law enforcement. And at fourteen. I kind of made up my mind that that's what I wanted, uh, only because back then there were were books that we weren't supposed to read. You know, they were more having two parents that were educators. They were pretty big on what you were allowed to read and what you weren't. Back in my day, I think the encyclopedia was probably the only thing that they thought was truly safe. I read The Godfather, (laughs) which again was taboo in our family. Yeah. Uh, Because I guess back then it probably had too much sex and violence in it. But my dad caught me reading it underneath my bed with a little flashlight, like a flashlight one night. And after he got over being horrified that I had disobeyed him, he asked me why. And I said, Dad, I promise you I didn't read the bad parts. I was reading the, the parts about the FBI and wiretapping and different things. And I said, I was so interested in that. I said so much so that I'm, I want to I go into law enforcement. So uh, that was the beginning of that dream. And as I said earlier, I was blessed to have a father that believed in his daughter's path. And he provided me with the strength to persevere and reminded me that the position was a position of honor, and that I had to respect that That being in law enforcement, I had would be held to a higher standard. I also had a daughter who gave me the reason to continue on and pursue my dream because I wanted to set an example for her to know that she could accomplish anything. And if she worked hard, had determination and had the support of people that loved her and also people around her. So it was important for me to to do that. So when I came out of the academy, again, being the only woman, they were kind of like forced positions. Because I had a child, they thought I would be good at working prevention and working crimes against children investigation. Mm -hmm. So I kind of specialized in that and started looking at uh, researching and violence prevention was the biggest thing I was interested in. Because when I had a case like a crimes against children case, eight out of 10 times, it wasn't because the child stepped forward and said someone had hurt them. Someone had physically, sexually, or mentally abused them. The child generally would act out, and in the course of that acting out, commit some type of a crime. And then we, in the reverse of the investigation, you would find out that the child had been injured. I used to call them children with holes in their heart. Their hearts had been so greatly affected by what? And the only recourse, because no, their voices weren't being heard, was the action of acting out. And so it became very important for me to learn how we could prevent that or intervene before the child would get to a point that now they've ill behavior, just like some of the things we're going to talk about today with PTSD and chronic pain and how we've seen others in our lives that share our illnesses and brain trauma that act out because they're not being heard. They're not being heard by the people that need to listen. So I worked those cases and learned a lot, uh, learned a lot about human nature. And also uh, the one important thing that came out of it, including all the research that we'll talk about uh, with the FBI piece, but uh, learned that the most important thing to a child was an adult that cared enough to say no and explained why, kind of like a presence there that listened and guided. And so that became kind of the basis of everything forward with my career. The importance of providing children with the resources they needed to become everything they were meant to be, Um, to know that they were worthy, to know that they were wanted, to know that their circumstances didn't dictate their life. It was a situation that they could both learn from and and teach others about. So I was patrol for about eight or nine years. Um, then my dad got very sick and and he he was kind of my best friend growing up. So I looked for a job that took me to uh, two college campuses as director of security and head of uh, the uh, chief of police on one of the campuses. It allowed me to have more time to be with him and not rotating shifts every week. And my daughter and I moved back home to help him with his uh, journey because he got afflicted with cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that course of being there, I was recruited by the DOJ, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, to start being a training instructor. And so we traveled all about, and uh, it was a team of about 40 of us that taught community policing, uh, cultural awareness, Uh violence prevention, reduction and intervention, and probably about maybe six or seven topics that my grandma brain skipping on right now, uh, that we would travel and we would do research and, and determine what we called it was the flavor of the neighborhood plan, like learning about the community, Learning about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the department, and and looking at all the resources, and then designing specific training. I was very proud to be on a team that in the early two thousands helped train all twelve hundred of the Pittsburgh police officers at the like twelve hundred of their le- in in leadership back then. So um, from there, I got uh, recruited by the FBI at a training training seminar, we were doing an overview on community policing. And there were about two or 300 law enforcement leaders in the in the group. And during one of the breaks, after my first uh, session, a gentleman walked up to me and asked me why I wasn't working for the FBI. And you know, back then I was kind of a smart ass for the lack of a better term and you know <laughs> what? No. he was flirting with me or whatever because that <laughs> happened quite often back then you know in my youthful days and um i basically told him when he met the fbi tell them where i was i smiled and turned around and went back to doing what i was doing so when i turned back to the podium his card was laying well i'm not gonna say his name but he knows who he is
0: yeah
1: and um his card was Lang, and it had his name, his title, and he was with the Senior Executive Service for the Bureau. <laughs> and I, I looked up at him, he was smiling <laughs> down, and I mouthed sorry, you know. Yeah. And so from there, just went on the applied and ended up the top candidate and, uh, for a spe- specific job because I was – he didn't realize I was, like, already, I think, what, about 40 um he thought i was young enough to maybe put through the uh academy quantica and i told him no and that's when they had this opening for this specialized position what they called community outreach specialist back then mm-hmm. and they were basically looking for somebody with a background in law enforcement and training so i went through the process finished up uh, and got and got hired january of 1998 so i was almost almost 42 at that point um, so it was a real privilege thinking back about what what I thought about at fourteen when I read that book that oh my god f b i you know, and here yeah, we are like here you are almost thirty years later, so it was pretty cool, probably one of those first moments when I realized that if you can visualize it, you can make it happen, you mm-hmm. know, like you know, don't give up on it, so that's pretty much you know that through like a brief trying not to be too wordy and give you a, a you know yeah a quick background on, on, uh, where, where I came from.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So long answer, tough question. And, um, keep in mind, I'm, I'm still learning more about this today. Um, cause I was just a, you think I'm a baby now I was a, I was just a little kid, you know, September 11th, 2001.
1: Yeah. What about and, 11, maybe 12 at the
0: moment? Uh, yeah. 11, I think. And I didn't really understand, what was going on. And I didn't even know, I didn't even know what the trade center was, for example. You know, I came from a very small city and I just had been very sheltered and you know, I'm sure a lot of other kids are too, but what happened on September 11th, 2001 for you?
1: Well, uh, being a member of the FBI, you know, we, we know what happened that terror asked acts of terrorism that first took place in New York and then the Pentagon. And then on a, rural field in uh, what's recognized as like Shanks, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. you know, about the planes and what took place. And,
0: and you were, uh, were you stationed, you were working in Pennsylvania with the FBI? Pittsburgh.
1: Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Okay. That's where I spent my entire okay. uh, career uh, with the Bureau there. Yeah. The Pittsburgh office, which was downtown in the federal courthouse at the time. And um, I was home uh, getting ready to leave for work. And uh, the car we called a, the bureau car, the Buick car, wouldn't start, and I knew it had to be the battery because it had it had I had problems with it a couple of days before, and I was real upset that the mechanic hadn't put a new battery in. And you know, after kicking the tires and swearing a few times, I went in the house to <laughs> call him and tell him that he needed to come tow the car, or come fix it, you know, because of it was a. Bureau owned car, you couldn't just call any mechanic or my brother to come jump it. Or, right? Yeah. You know what I mean, it's it was an official vehicle, so I had to honor. So he told me on the phone he would be about an hour. He'd be there. So I called the boss at the because I worked for directly for the SAC, the special agent in charge in my position, called him, told him what happened, told him that I was going to have to cancel morning meetings because my job was basically public and community affairs. So you were out more than you were in, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe one day a week you were in to do administrative work. Yeah. So um, um, I went in to make phone calls and I muted the television and I had it on good morning America and Diane Sawyer was the, um, on the screen. And behind her, I saw an image of the, the twin towers. One had a gaping hole in it and it was on fire. And I thought to myself, it's Tuesday. Why are they showing movie trailers? They usually do it on Friday. That's all I remember thinking. Mm. And turned to make phone calls to just cancel what two or three meetings for in the morning. And so when I was done, I unmuted the TV, and I heard her say that ABC News had just confirmed that a passenger plane had struck the Twin Tower. And having been in law enforcement for, what, about 17 years at that point, I knew instant, like you have instant, instinctively that there was something wrong. And then just like everybody else, Within minutes, we watched the second plane hit, and then we heard the succession of events with the Pentagon, a plane that had turned over Cleveland headed toward, you know, they assumed Washington, D.C. Pittsburgh was evacuated. The pagers started going off. I called the office to see what we were supposed to do because my vehicle's now down. I needed permission to come in with my own vehicle and leave the Bureau vehicle there. And um, they said that they were on hold waiting for uh, headquarters in D.C. to tell them what to do. So I waited a short period of time. I called back in. They said that uh, they needed volunteers to go up to Shanksville with mobile command. And I said I would... I would be glad to, you know, do whatever I needed to do because in my position too, being with community affairs, more than likely I'd have to help determine what ancillary services we needed once we arrived, you know, to um, to prepare for what they would call an all points response.
0: And at that moment, did you know that? About the crash, did you know that a plane went down at that location?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I knew, and that's what they were saying <laughs> that they want, needed to stage mobile command because mm-hmm. it was in a rural area. I knew that the agents from the uh, what they called the residents resident agencies, which were kind of like field offices, like it. Pittsburgh had the division headquarters and then you had our territory was Western PA and all of West Virginia. So I, I think at that time we had 13 or like filled, field offices that covered. Mm-hmm. So Johnstown was the closest office to the flight 93 crash site. So uh, several of the men went there to look and, and determine. And my job was to go with, um, the head mechanic because he had the CDL license to drive, stage it, get it ready, and then let my division know what we needed immediately from um the standpoint of for service. How were we gonna like stage everything? Mm-hmm. The counterterrorism agent that that was in his separate vehicle, he was there to tell them uh, what kind of st- they needed for like the investigative pieces immediately. You know, the primary job was to get command stage so that we would have the ability to communicate. Um, so when we arrived, I uh, first saw the state police, the Pennsylvania state police were responsible for security of the perimeter of everything. And from what I'd been told by uh, one of the uh, one of the bosses was that they were having trouble with people going in and grabbing things like off, off the site. And so they had the, the state police went in to secure uh, everything. I think it was from about eight miles out. And the whole time it took about 90 minutes to get up there because they were evacuating the city of Pittsburgh. We had a state police escort to get us, you know, through it, through the maze as best we could um, but about 90 minutes, I never talked to the, the, the guy in the, in the vehicle with me and he never talked to me. All I did was kept thinking in my head, what was I going to encounter? And I was praying too, cause it was a bit overwhelming for everybody, you know, like yeah. my daughter and my daughter, very young, and she was already working for the United States attorney's office um and she had her first daughter who was in her initial days of kindergarten so being a mom i was more worried about like were they okay you know and and um i had had the chance to talk to her i told her just to get home get the baby get in the house and stay there and she had everything she needed she didn't need to leave you know and just stay home
0: yeah totally valid yeah well
1: at that point, we didn't really know. I don't think. I mean, we could have assumed because all the planes had been grounded by that point. I think historically they said five thousand planes within ninety minutes over the, the continental United States and all the territories where we, you know, across the world, uh, mm-hmm. they were safely grounded. So, but you, you know, at that point, you, you really we. I don't think we really knew because it's the first time in our history of our country we were dealing with us yeah right so um we get there and um the three of us walked out on because there was only one service road this was an entirely rural area where i think it was under like remediation they were trying to get it because it had been more like a a landfill like uh, area and so we walked out onto what was like a little bluff um, if you look at the the Flight 93 National Memorial now, it's where the 40 trees would have been planted or were planted that they're there now to represent the passengers and crew that died that day. And so we walked out onto that and uh, directly in front, well, to, kind of to the right a little bit, it, it, where the boulder is now to mark like the the actual where the plane crashed, A little to the right, we saw this, it wasn't really a gaping hole, but you could tell it was where the plane had gone in. It kind of looked like the plane had hit the ground and exploded and kind of everything around it kind of fell in, almost like when you see, you know, those the, the new holes we see that are opening up in the earth sometimes, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so that's what it looked like. And to... Directly in front of that were trees, mostly coniferous trees, that were still a little bit smoldering, but the first, the first sense that really hit me was the smell. I smelled pine trees and jet fuel, and it burned your nose. Like it almost felt like my nose and my, um, my lips were on fire. And it was eerily quiet, too, because you were in a forested area and there were no animals. You didn't hear any birds. You didn't see any squirrels. It was just, like, eerie quiet. So to the left of us were a couple guys from the FBI resident agency of Johnstown. I recognized them. They were kind of walking around. And to the right of us were a couple guys that looked like they had a little bit of, like, protective gear on them, Um like just their map, you know, some masks and like their face covering and stuff. And one of the guys I was with ultimately said that that was probably the NTSB or FAA. I don't remember to this day. And then kind of like dead center. So the right, you had a little, the plain, the forest and a couple guys to the left. Dead center, if you look at the site now, there's like water, like ponds of water It now has a bridge over it that you could walk over. But that's kind of what I was staring at the most. Mm -hmm. So what I saw uh, initially was like flickering light. And I always tell people that I remember kind of splintering into three, three personalities. The first one being the law enforcement officer. I was there to do a job and get information for my bosses. Right. Um, determine like what we needed to get out there as quickly as we could, and then the mom thinking about because we had had enough information to know that everybody had been killed, the towers had fallen. We didn't know how many thousands of people were going to be. But I, as a mother, I remember thinking about how many. Moms weren't going to be able to say goodbye to their kids that day. And, you know, for me, my daughter's 48 years old now. And if she's sick, you better get out of my way. You know, like I want to see my baby. So it kind of struck me about that, being a parent and knowing that your child had been killed or injured and not being able to get to them. That bothered me probably the most. And then I prayed Uh, to be able to do the job he had sent me there to do. And, you know, like everybody else, questioning completely how could somebody do anything in the name of God. The God I was raised to believe in was love and light. So um, you're standing there kind of splintered, and you got one guy on each side and kind of men all around you, and you don't get to do what you really wanted to do, which is be a girl. A woman. And women, you know, we do show our emotions. I'm sure you have a few in your life that let you know when something's not right.
0: Two daughters and a wife, yep.
1: All right. Well, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying, yeah. And for you guys, you yell and you feels better. For us, we usually cry and it makes us feel better. And I didn't feel like I could be my authentic self there right. in the midst of what was going on. So um, all I really wanted to do was get on my knees scream why and have a few tears shed, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't allowable. I learned in the first months of my career, never to cry in front of the men. Yeah. And so um, I looked across like out over the water and I saw what was like sparkling, like twinkling lights. And I pretty much convinced myself initially that it was, um, it was
0: like debris
1: fish, like scale. I'd been to Ireland a couple times already when they did salmon runs. And what it looked like was diamonds twinkling off the water when the fish were close to the water before they would jump.
0: Oh, yeah. So I
1: assumed some fish had gotten killed and they were laying on the surface and their silvery scales were being reflected, you know, from the sunlight and things. So that's. And how far away think.
0: is that from you? If you had to guess, like how many feet away is that? Oh,
1: it's, it's a distance. Yeah. Um, Oh, I don't know. You're asking me (laughs) in the middle. It's a, it's a good distance. You know, like if you go on the, on the, on the national site, you you can pretty much see what the distance would be. But so the twinkling light started getting really bright and kept distracting me toward it versus what my job was, you know, to, to do. And so I said another prayer about like, you know, don't Please let me be solid in what I need to do here today. And so all of a sudden, as I looked out across, the light got real bright, Emma, like very pristine white to a point that it was Emma's blinding. And then all of a sudden there was like, um, it turned more like a very brilliant misty cloud so, you know, you're standing there thinking, I'm losing it. This is too much for me. I'm praying, saying, God, please don't let me let me do my job. You know, uh, don't let me be overwhelmed by whatever. And, I mean, you have to remember, we're looking at a scene. You've got the smell of jet fuel. You've got the smell of of tree, pine trees. There's It's dead quiet. Nobody's talking to each other. We're all walking around as if. You're in some kind of state, a surreal state. there's debris everywhere. there's things no human should ever have to see hanging in in the trees, you know uh, what would have been the last part of human remnants and and things and so you're you're worried you know I've stood there worried that maybe you know my mind was trying to adjust, you know. Yeah. And so all of a sudden this mist opens and there's what I call now a Legion of Angels. They were archangels. I know you know I went to Catholic school for my elementary education and I had very devout Catholic parents. Uh, my mother still says the rosary, you know, twice a day and goes to mass virtually twice, you know, on Sundays. And so we were raised very devout and they were tall. They, they were almost a, equivalent to the height of the bluff. They looked like male and female features. I always say they had every color of gold and brown hair you can imagine. And skin color, just skin color of every variety. And what I, what I like to think is that, you know, at this stage, knowing what I know, is that I think they estimated 60 or 70 cultures were affected. People died that were part of 60 to 70 cultures that day. So I like to believe that the angels were there representing all of those cultures, every form of humanity that had suffered um, on that day. And so they were in military robes. They were dressed in what I came to know as Roman centurion Gear. there was one out front and he was the only one with a saber it was angled down to the ground i learned through the military that the angled down saber means you've been tried and proven um they said that like when they you graduate from the academy military it's up in the air and then once you go to battle or whatever, it's you know, you can angle it down when you march or whatever. So Yeah,
0: I see that a lot in different parades. Yeah, yeah. You know what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: yeah, I didn't know that at the time. You know, it, it took years for me to understand what the meaning of that saver was. And so I'm standing there. What would you be thinking? Like, holy hell, I just love them. <laughs> you're you know?
0: looking at these beings, you're looking at these mm-hmm. angels. And, uh, I mean, what were your, what were your emotions? Like, what what did you feel when you're looking at this? I mean, did you feel like they were looking at you or they're just looking at the site or what was, what was going through? Well,
1: I didn't get a sense. They were there for me. They were there because of what had transpired. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I, I sensed as if almost they were talking to me, but my, my human couldn't, like they were, They were talking, but not talking like you and I are. Like I was hearing things. And so again, I prayed and I said, God, please don't let me, you know, if that, if they're there, I need a sign. Like now there's angels standing in front of you in a half moon perimeter, like thousands of them. And you're asking for a sign. I mean, talk about doubting, you know, that was doubting Lily that day, but the stories of doubting what you see. Or never more relevant. I, I can't honestly say to you what I was thinking other than, oh my God, you know, like, am I seeing this?
0: Do you think you experienced shock in that moment or even before that? Or was it, did it never really get to that point?
1: I think I was too trained to even say that I was in shock. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you do law enforcement, it's almost like when you put the uniform on, something happens. And that persona of that training, I can't say I was in shock. I don't feel like my hu- I don't feel like my human was in shock. I feel like my trained mind had taken over from the moment I got in that mobile command. Yeah. Um, I just didn't have any expectation to see angels. I expected to see what I saw, and that was tough enough. We're looking at, am I? hallucinate you know am I seeing a vision and I knew because I'd seen angels and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit yeah later but I I I knew it wasn't a yeah you know, sort of, yeah. Some so, sort of
0: a hallucination or something no, yeah. I know yeah
1: I I that never entered that really didn't enter my mind it was more what the hell why you and
0: know? you were uh, correct me if I'm wrong you were like looking around at the other guys like any of you guys seeing this stuff and and you didn't really you
1: know. I didn't ask anybody because again they would have just called the bosses and said she lost her mind, take her home. She's not right. fit. I wasn't gonna let that happen. I was the only female standing on that property at that time.
0: Right. The
1: yeah. only woman from the FBI, there was no way in hell they were gonna tell me that I wasn't fit. You know? right. and so I felt like I was there for a purpose. And um, so all of a sudden the guys to the right of us, whoever they were, said something about um I don't remember if it was the fire the, the the was smoldering again, like the trees were smoldering again, or it was about, because I was, we were there in our street clothes. I was in a skirt, a blouse, a pair of shoes, stockings, and that was it, you know, because you had rushed from home. And I had bag packed in the bureau car, but I didn't even think to put it in my car. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I didn't even think. So we started to move toward the right and walked down a bit and we saw a suitcase. And the suitcase was spewed open with clothes hanging out and it was all intact but singed like the articles inside were singed. And one of the men said out loud the suitcase made it were the bodies. And that was the first time that somebody had verbalized what, kind of like what I was thinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They said it out loud. And so I looked back, I remember looking back, and I the angels were still there. We moved forward a little bit more, and I asked God about a, another sign. This is my second, you know, like second time asking him, for a sign. So we moved up a little bit further and there was a Bible laying on the grass, the ground, and it was mostly more sand and wild grasses back then from what I remember. Mm -hmm. It was laying there and it was singed too. And one of the guys again, made a comment about the Bible. So I looked back again and I remember saying to myself, God, if that's you, I need a sign. All of a sudden, you felt this huge wind come in. And it blew open the Bible to Psalm 23. I wrestled with that for a couple years until I did EMDR. And I know we're going to talk about that too. Mm -hmm. But it blew open to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And all of a sudden, this big brown hawk took up like up off the ground and flew. And every Catholic part of me said, you better not ask again, because then the lightning bolts coming and you're going to be on the ground. And I turned back and looked and the angels were gone. So I went back to work and did what I needed to do just like everybody else. You know, when we talk about this, I want to make sure your audience knows that, you know, in the course of probably the two to three weeks, there were about 1200 individuals that worked in some capacity on that site, whether they were United Airlines, the FBI, the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, the chaplains, everybody, the victim witness coordinator, everybody that was there. It was the first time in my career at 17 years, that I had seen, I say in the book, like a beehive, nobody cared what their role was. Nobody fought about like, that's not my job description. Everybody did everything they could to bring some kind of resolve for these families. Yeah, Um, I don't think I was ever more honored to be a part of my profession than in those couple weeks. And to see a quality of individuals that put humanity first. It was just... That's incredible. It was just something to watch and be a part of. So I honor everybody that was a part of this. And so when I tell this story, my story's just a piece of everything that took place in that day and on post days of recovery.
0: And seeing what you saw,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the angels, the, the Psalm 23... Mm-hmm. The, the hawk, and then you went on with your duties in the day. And I and I imagine you're holding a pretty strong, uh, you know, you're keeping it together. You're holding a strong persona. And like you said, when you have, it's kind of like when you put the uniform on, you do your duty and then you'll deal with it later kind of attitude. But did that part of it feel peaceful to you at all? Or did it feel, or were you troubled by it?
1: No, it felt significant, and I had to put it in the parking lot until I could deal with it at a later time. Yeah. It was necessary to do what you were there, sent there to do, you had to do it. And um, I knew at some point I would be able to reckon with it, but I didn't have the time. this I wasn't there about me. I was there to do a job and to play a part in the bigger picture, uh, just like everybody else that was there for their specific role um, or a role that became defined as a result of this this terrible tragedy that we were all dealing with for the first time in our country.
0: Well, I thank you and commend you for responding, doing what you had to do too. Um, but let's get into the so one of those. I might be wrong about this too, but one of those angels you recognized, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Archangel Michael.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us your history with Michael? Because um, you had something happen as a child. Am I right?
1: Yes. But I didn't recollect that at that time. I just knew instinctively it was him. Mm-hmm. I never put the connection to him until uh, when I wrote the book and when it was about a, to be published, like when it was done and it was in format that it was going to be good. You know, we were looking for a publisher and, and everything. Uh, my mom came to my house the day after Christmas that year. So it might've been like, I think we published in 2012. So maybe, I don't remember dates, you know, it's too far removed, but mom came to the house cause it was her, she would come the day after Christmas and she'd have leftovers with me, you know, at my house. And yeah. so um, we talked a little bit and I could tell she was uneasy about something. So I asked her, what was wrong and she said she was concerned about the book and I said, Well she could read it. You know, she could read it before we did anything with it and that it was just finally formatted and we had a full manuscript and ready to, you know, to proceed. And she asked me if I put anything negative about her in it. And I asked her why would she think that? And she said, Well you came out of the whim telling me to go to hell and kissing your dad. And we've always been oil and water. And I said, Mom, at this point in my life I don't give you full responsibility for my mistake. I mean, I'm old enough to know that I played a big part in those decisions and choices. And Mm -hmm. she said, well, that that was good. And she asked me if it was about the angels. So I said, yes. Because at that point, I'd already been doing EMDR. Started uh, with it um, the June or July before. It was 2010. Yeah.
0: That was for the PTSD that you developed after all this. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And we right. can talk about that in, in, a, in a little bit. But mm-hmm. So then she asked me if there was anything in there about the blue man with wings. And I said, what? She said, the blue man with wings. And as she said that, all these, like, images from childhood started coming, like, filtering in. And I said to her, how the hell do you know about the blue man with wings? And she said, well, when you were little, probably as young as three maybe until you were about about seven or so. Sometimes you would come down in the middle of the night, Daddy and I were in bed, or we would be watching Johnny Carson, and he would tell us the blue man with wings was visiting. And Daddy would go back upstairs with you. And I shared a room with my sister at that time, I think, if I remember right well. Daddy would come up, look under the bed, open the, the big closet, you know, like the walk-in closet. And yeah. And um, he would tell me there was nobody there. And she said I would insist he he was standing in the corner smiling and that he was beautiful like blue. Like I've come to know it's cobalt blue now. And then she told me that sometimes I would talk to him or I would go somewhere. I would tell them that I would hear like buzzing in my ears. And then I would look up as if I was talking to somebody and listening too I would have like a conversation with an imaginary friend. So all that flooded back in and I realized that's how I recognized the you know, the archangel at the site, it was him. So with her telling me that information, like a lot of memories, because you know most kids don't remember things until they're about four or five, I guess from what they say is, you know, historically with memory. Yeah. And up until that point, my first memory vivid memory was of my first uh, Holy Communion. And that's when I felt his touch and heard his voice. The first time that I remember I was nervous, you know, when you go to Catholic school back then, the nun, the nuns were not always <laughs> <laughs> kind and compassionate. Right. Yeah. They were more <laughs> disciplinarian. Um, and um, all I remember was being afraid of the nun. Because she told us that if we made a mistake in front of the bishop, we weren't only embarrassing ourselves, we're embarrassing the whole parish. So that's a lot to put on a seven year old's shoulders. Indeed. So I was worried most about marching. So when I got up, I received the host, went to turn. I could, I like blanked out about how I was supposed to go. And all of a sudden, I felt like as if. Somebody put their hands on my shoulders and shifted me in the right direction. And I heard in a soft voice that it would be okay. And I remember that completely for most of, you know, most of my life. And then as I aged, I would hear the voice directing me, even as a young police officer, don't go in the alley, don't do this, don't do that. And I said that it had to be Michael that whole time. and now I know it is because of the connection with him continuously and what I call the sacred circle of the archangels, the 16 that I know by name and, and I can feel and I sense around people and myself sometimes. So that's that history that mom, and then I got very angry with her to tell her that I'd been walking around for all these years thinking I'd lost my damn mind. Meanwhile, she had the truth. Yeah. Why hadn't she shared it with me? And she said, because it went against her religious beliefs. But I said to her, but mom, the stories of the Bible talk about the wind and talk about angelic encounters and talk about um, the voices and the whispers. I said, that's all, all Old Testament. Like, it's all valid according to the Bible that you live by. Right. You know, and she looked at me and she said, well, maybe I was just afraid that people would think you're weird. I said, well, I am, and I don't care. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I, I don't care. You know, it's not weird. It's unique. We're all like snowflakes. We're unique in our design. And But something happened that day. So I was 55 years old, and that conversation made everything okay with me from that point on. I didn't care what anybody thought of me. I didn't care if they believed me. It wasn't my place to make them believe. All it was was my place to tell the truth. And, you know, with the EMDR treatments, um, it made me, it validated everything for me. You know, like, but finally um, around in 2008, I started realizing that I was, I, I, I had had health issues From 2002 on. And, you know, everybody can look all that up. There's too much to talk about, but there's a world, uh, there's a um, health program that the responders are cared for now. There's a a DNA to PTSD and how it affects the body and what happens once the brain's traumatized with, um, you know, illnesses that come from, you know, respiratory to GERD and to, musculoskeletal things. And mm-hmm. I'm not a doctor, so I don't dig into that too much. But as early as February of 2002, I started having health issues. And by 2008, I was a mess physically and emotionally. And so I from headquarters and it took about two years for them to finally say, all right, let's get her done now. And they sent me to a therapist that was a doctor, or well, not a doctor, but uh, um, had her master's in uh, both nursing and psychology. And she had worked with us uh, as part of our team, uh, teaching about triggers, red flags and things with, you know, with youth violence. So uh, when you work for the Bureau, you just can't go knock on a door and say, I need help. They have to sanction it because of the top secret clearance issues and stuff. So I started seeing her. And then uh, the lead uh, psychologist at FBI said that they wanted me to do a treatment called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And uh, the therapist didn't have, wasn't certified in it. So they set out to find another one and she suggested a couple. So the first one they sent me to, she was so kumbaya, I couldn't even relate to her, you know, like, (laughs) like, one more time sitting in there and I was probably going to lose it. you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I know what you mean.
1: So the second one they sent me to, every time I walked in and I was going twice a week, she asked me if I was suicidal or homicidal. And when I finally said to her, if I was suicidal or homicidal, I'd take you out first and then take myself out. I wouldn't explain it to you. I must have said it so eerily to her that she told them she didn't want to work with me, that she was afraid of... Uh, We found out that she had been injured during her tenure uh, by uh, like a psychotic patient. Um, So that was her issue, you know? And so they found this, the third doctor, and she didn't want to work with the FBI. She was concerned that her patient wouldn't have the freedom to heal and the patient being me. So when I finally I called her myself and told her that if somebody didn't help me, I didn't know if I was going to ever regain my mind again. And so I went in to see her. We, I spewed I don't know what. And then when I was done, uh, I could tell she had compassion in her eyes. And she said to me, if I tell you I've been collecting angel statues since I was 12, do you think we could work together? And she was perfect for me. She, she was younger, a uh, doctor of psychology. She had, she was a Catholic, with, with a Catholic background. So a lot of what I would be relating to her would be okay. You know, like yeah. she would be able to comprehend it. And being a female, you know, like, like two, it brought me comfort. So we began to do what we call with this EMDR, and, and your audience can look it up because it Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't feel comfortable explaining it.
0: Yeah, I had a I had a previous podcast where I talked about my own EMDR experience. Yeah. And the, kind of the core, I think, before you continue is EMDR, when you're going through it, can reveal a lot of details about incidents mm-hmm. and things that you've been through that you otherwise couldn't recall. That's
1: uh, because your brain splinters kind of into two.
0: Right, yes.
1: The left brain remembers things and the right brain remembers things. And when you get traumatized, they don't connect. The synopses don't connect to remember. So it Mm -hmm. makes it even more traumatic. You're already traumatized and now your brain isn't like giving you the full information. You're getting bits and pieces. That's why you get the flashbacks. That's why you get like that sensation of uh, I've been here before and different things. So. Yeah.
0: And is it, it's used for victims too, right? Where they yep, can
1: they use it now. Yeah. For victims. Re-
0: they can recall like what the, the maybe the suspect was wearing or maybe what was in the background or yeah. and details that they otherwise couldn't recall. Not but the yes.
1: conscious mind, but it's all lays underneath yeah. the subconscious. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the first three months we did, um, Everything you would expect to come out. I've seen her once or twice, twice a week, I think. Everything you would, and she audiotapes everything so that if I wanted to listen. And so maybe about the third or fourth month in, I would get like trance, like, I don't know what it was like for you, but it would put me in like a deep, I call it a recollection field, like a, a deep sense of recollection, like the tiniest of details and I felt so
0: hypnotized. Yeah, son. I did
1: too. I felt hypnotized, but that's they the say you're not.
0: Yeah, that's the best way I can relate. That's the best word I can relate it to. I yeah, guess.
1: I felt yeah. trance-like, like yeah. you were in some kind of a trance. And so, um on that particular one when I came out, I could tell she was upset. I said to her what what happened? And she said I don't I'm not real sure. And I said, "What do you mean you're not sure?" She said, "Well, when you talked, the words came out in three different voices. And I looked at her and I said, are you going to friggin' tell me now like a multi-personality and you're going to get to write the next book about like, uh, I think I said Sybil because that was the big one when I was young. It was about a woman, the doctor wrote, I think she had 30 or 40 personalities, you know? Yeah. She said, Lily, that's not what happened. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, I think somebody was, you were like channeling information. And I looked at her and I said, What the hell is it channeling? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? And she said to me, she explained what a channeler was, and she said that I think you're channeling the angels that were there. So I had her replay that audio, and it freaked me out. There were two male voices, a female voice. The male voice talked about that the angels were sent to pursue the defeat of violence, that they waited for the two channelers to arrive before they manifested. They said that they arrived because it was time for the human race to lay down the sword and embrace the heart, and that Mother Mary had come as well, and to gather the souls that wanted to go home with, with her, that they had arrived because she was the queen of angels and she was there first and foremost. And what I saw was the remnants of... So you're sitting there listening to this and these voices, and I'm talking about having seen colors before the voices start and all kind of things. What's on your mind at that point?
0: I mean, it chronologically makes sense, but I'm also, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious to hear the rest. I'm not, I don't think any of it sounds crazy personally. During And during this same EMDR, maybe not that same day, but the the same treatment, is this where it was kind of revealed like the blue man was Michael? Is that where you kind of- No,
1: I kind of knew that as soon as mom told me the blue man with wings. It yeah. was instinctive that I knew him, it was him when mom had said that. Cause um, he
0: told you his name at one point, didn't he? Or am I wrong about that?
1: Yeah. But you know, I don't remember everything clearly because there were so many sequences and, and again, you know, we're, we're still dealing with a brain that's, that's traumatized to this day. So right. I try not to worry about what I don't remember and allow myself to stay in the the present moment and, and recall it as best I can, you know, and, and like at some point she has everything on audio tape. Oh, she can put whatever I want on a CD. And, you know, at some point when, when I'm a little bit, you know, maybe I'll ask her to put them all on there. I want to hear everything, but I'm not there yet. I, I, I don't know. Well,
0: EMDR is meant to, to heal. Mm -hmm. the brain i mean that's the whole purpose behind it so i yeah i understand
1: you know as bad as covid's been and it's been horrific you know not being able to see grandkids family deaths a mom that's you know not well and everything but it did allow me for a time to pause and i feel for the first time in night in 19 years since all that happened that i have my shit together for the for the lack of a better term. I know you have audience out that are saying, oh my God, she's swearing. Yes, I do like a truck driver.
0: Oh no, I swear too. It's fine.
1: <laughs> so, but I i think I don't feel good all the time. I don't, but of course, my spirit is so enriched. I told my daughter a couple months ago that if I died tomorrow, I'd only have two regrets that I wasn't able to have more children and give her like sister and brother. She's my only child. And that I didn't get to spend 10 years by the beach with a man worthy of me and me of him. And that would be it. Everything else is basically, I've had a blessed life, you know, and like you talk about, I think like you, one of your questions you sent me was about surrendering
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next. I heard you say something about that before, about kind of staying quiet and surrendering. Mm -hmm.
1: But I want everybody out there to know, because I am not some saint, relatable in that I have as many faults, if not more than anybody else listening to this. But I had to think about this so that I could say it the way I wanted, and I wrote it down so I could read it. Sure. I did not go quietly into the night. I did not surrender. I came to the omnipresence of the Lord, kicking, screaming, and swearing to. My journey was more a gradual transition than a surrender. With a warrior spirit, my ego interfered a great deal. I perceived myself strong enough to stand alone. It wasn't until I realized that no one is truly ever alone, that God is present within. I realized that surrender was really about trust. I learned that my fear interfered. And I also came to realize that fear is the absence of trust. And so when I truly began to let go and let God, my spiritual evolution began. and if you want to call that surrendering, that's when I got it.
0: Perfect answer. You must be a writer
1: or something. Oh, uh, maybe for about fifty years i've've I've written, but yeah, I, I like when I feel that I write it, and that's what I sense would be a good answer. Gosh, I can,
0: I can really relate to that too. Um, And not to, I don't mean to like interject, but it just, I feel like I should say, you know, I've been in a similar, very similar position where I Mm -hmm. was praying and I was, and I was new to prayer at this time. I did what I thought was surrendering and you're exactly right. It's about trust. I think you just put it into words for the first time for me to kind of realize that's what it really was. And then afterwards you know, I've had my own stuff that I, I can't explain happened to me. And, and then the podcast came to be after, you know, I was sort of directed into it.
1: Well, you're going for purpose, like to bring the word in, in your own way out, the messages. Yeah. Like you have a law enforcement background. So, you know, even though you work as a team, when you're in that patrol car, you're, you're autonomous. You're responsible to make decisions that are life, relate to life and death. Yes, And I think that is also hard in the surrender because that autonomy interferes with you've made all these big decisions and you'll live with them the rest of your life. So almost like you put up that shield to protect yourself, you don't realize until you do come to understand that that power's within. It has nothing to do with your humanity. It has everything to do with your soul, your connection to God and what that purpose is meant to be, I think. That's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and like when I tell P, when I tell the story that I tell the story, my tell. It's not for anyone to believe me. It's not for anyone to disbelieve me. It's my I feel like my purpose is just to share the story because I believe it's God's tale, not mine. I was just the human being that happened to be their witness and trusted that there was something greater going on than me.
0: And I think for anybody that wants to play kind of, if they want to play investigator, I don't, like, you don't force your story on anybody. You didn't email me saying, Hey, I want to be featured on your podcast. I stumbled upon you and, and I really wanted to talk to you after I learned about who you were.
1: Well, thank you for that. That was very um, kind of you. Um,
0: yeah. Well, thank you for responding. I, I was, uh, <laughs> it's funny how I we even got in touch, but mm-hmm. what I from what I see, if I was an outsider listening to this podcast, like you're not forcing this down anybody's throat. You you have a story to tell. It's factual, and yeah, like you said earlier, it really doesn't matter if people don't believe you or, or not. Uh, the The bottom line is purpose in life.
1: Yeah, and and that's kind of where I'm at. Like you know, I'm I'm in the last chapters of my life, whether it's a year or it's. Twenty-five years or whatever it is, you know, like this is the last part of my life. If you know, you have youth, and then you have uh, your middle time, and then you have, like, you know, once they consider you like a senior, you know, my my eldest granddaughter just had had her first child, so I'm a great grandma. So you're in an age where I feel like the most two two important things are to share wisdom and legacy, like to leave behind the essence. Just like when that snowflake melts, the uniqueness of it is gone. I think it's important for us to leave something behind. For me, it has everything to do with living your authentic life with your voice that was meant to be heard. And so, you know, when someone's skeptical or cruel, I will tell them that they don't feed me, they don't clothe me, they don't pay my bills or take care of me when I'm sick. So I really don't give a shit what they think about me. Boom. And that's it. And that's that human.
0: Let's back up a second. You, I think I skipped over this, but you stayed quiet for a long time. You just kind of held this to yourself, right? For
1: first year anniversary, I sought the uh, guidance of a priest who was a friend, but also had been working with the FBI and, in numerous ways in leadership groups and things. And I had, uh, we'd had numerous talks about. Catholicism and the way I saw things. And so right after the uh, first anniversary, some things happened again with the wind. And I uh, wrote down the story. I tucked it in a favorite book. Um, I think it was about 10 or 12 pages long about the angels. My father, who I mentioned earlier, was Lebanese by heritage and a Maronite Catholic. His favorite author was Khalil Gibran, who happens to be a prophet from the Maronite faith what before he died he gave me a copy of the book Jesus the Son of Man because it's my it's my favorite of the Gibran books because it's was the prophet's interpretation of each significant person that Jesus came into contact with initially and how his presence changed them for the better because you know each one of his his disciples were flawed human beings and so my favorite passage was about Mary Magdalene because what I haven't shared about with your, with you or the audience is, I got pregnant and married when I was 16, 1972. Mm-hmm. So if you want to think about being unworthy, I could have murdered 12 people and the church would have been kinder with me than they were my being a pregnant teenager. Thank God my husband, my daughter's father was older than me and he had the right to make the decision and we were keeping the child, we were getting married and and thank god for my my dad too my dad was very supportive despite his religious beliefs and so i kind of grew up thinking i was unworthy because they basically told made me feel like i was the next uh, mary magdalene or the harlot of babylon or because i refused to give my child to a good catholic family i wanted to keep her and so i grew up thinking the unworthiness uh, that always reflected back. And uh, so when I went to see father, well, he's Monsignor Lungwen now, I went, I called him and told him I needed to talk to him. I tucked the pages in that book, because I knew my daughter, if she, if something happened to me, and she was sorting through my library, she was so close with my dad, too, there would be a deep connection to that book, and she would find the story. Went to see father, told him what happened. And he told me, so what's the what's the problem, you know, basically. And I said, I'm not worthy. And he looked at me and he said, so, you know, more than God. I said, what's that mean? Like what that, you know, don't, don't get philosophical. On yeah. that all that <laughs> conversation it
0: sounds like something I would say.
1: Yeah. And then we're, we're, I, I do talk like that to him. Like, you know, yeah. He said, before you were even a particle of dust, the good Lord had this plan for you. And you fulfilled the plan by being there. And I said, but I don't understand. I said, and I told him, I I had never shared with him about being the 16-year-old. And again, we're talking about 1972. So, you know, like.
0: Yeah, it was taboo.
1: Yeah, half a century ago, you know, almost. And um, he said to me, do you remember who Jesus was? And I said, okay, we're not having a religious, like, you know, class right now. Of course, I know who Jesus was. He said, do you remember who his disciples were? And I said, yes. He said they were the murderer, the thief, the tax collector, all the people that you wouldn't think a saintly human being would pick to befriend. He said, do you know why? I said, no. He said so that they would be relatable to humanity when they surrendered and their soul transformed to the beauty within. And I still couldn't quite grasp it, but I get it now. I mean, isn't that what the stories of the Bible tell us to why Jesus came in human form? So he could be relatable to us too. So that was the first person I told. A few years later, I told my boss, who he's been a good friend ever since. Um, I told he was the first one in the FBI. I think I told him in 2005. And then it stayed quiet until 2010. And then everything started coming up. I may have talked to like a couple groups, uh, church groups in that intermittent time, but that's all kind of cloudy for me now. Mm -hmm. But EMDR brought it all to light.
0: Yeah, this might be somewhat of a rhetorical question now, but what do you believe is the reason you were chosen? You know, why were you privy to witness the presence or do you not have an answer
1: I just think because I was open to it and I didn't care.
0: Yeah. Well, even as a kid, um, like, did you, did you, I'm sure you wondered like, oh, why, why, why me? Why was I picked?
1: I just think we all have it, like that intuition. I think that like gift is there. It's just how we process it. And my mom always said I marched to my own drum from the time I came out of the womb. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a warrior. My dad always told me I was too stupid to be afraid. Uh, He didn't mean it in a bad way. It was just a way of saying like that I had a lot of, I led with my, he said, always told me I led with my, the courage inside of me. So I'm just thinking it, just who I am and what I am, you know, and hiding, hiding about it made me feel worse about myself than telling it, you know, and I ultimately lost my job because of it. You know, we had couple different psychologists that reviewed that believed me. And then finally one that said it was, I was delusional. And um, the psychologist that I still see, the initial, the one that helped me with the MDR, she came to the session to listen what he asked me. They had a terrible fight, argument. She asked me to leave the room and they had this terrible argument. I could hear them that she was asking him that he he realized he was re-traumatizing me and using words that would hurt and not heal me, and that all I needed was more time to heal. And I heard him say that he couldn't allow me to go back to work, um, that he felt that if he did, he would be causing me permanent damage. Um, And so you went, you know, like, now then do battle with your employer because they're the psychologist is telling you you're disabled from law enforcement, but yet you have to prove it. So it, it was it was a vicious circle for a long time. Yeah. I still think the hardest aspect of all of this was losing my job because it made me feel unwanted.
0: I can relate to that, definitely.
1: Yeah. You, know, you and I have talked about that. So when I tell you that it's when we had the private conversation, it was more about understanding it more fully than you than you know. Yeah, I lost
0: my friends and and my. Mm-hmm. I feel like a big part of my identity after all the time you put in, and you know that all the, all the time, all the training, mm-hmm. like every single. I mean, it was a big part of who we were.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think like especially like what I said at fourteen. I made the decision, law enforcement, not a pediatrician, law enforcement, you know, and and you get pregnant and married at 16, everything should have been blown out of the water. But that's how I knew it was of God too. Because think about 1972, you know, I had great backing from my parents and had the ability to marry a, a young man who didn't have to worry about money and already had a job in a family business that was thriving, you know, and things and but when I look at back at it, I know it was divine intervention. Because how did a stupid 16-year-old kid that got pregnant as a teenager had a child end up at the FBI? If that wasn't divine intervention, I don't know what was.
0: So lately, you saw this. I sent this to you before. But um, I have those moments where, uh, and we're talking about going back to, you know, we're not able to go back to work. And that was yeah. that was kind of taken out of our life situation
1: what?
0: and I have these moments where it's uh, almost like I don't know if I'm reaching anybody I don't even know where I'm supposed to be during the day sometimes if one of my kids is in uh, napping and the other one's at school at times you feel like maybe my life is significant you start to question have those doubts and or those dark thoughts and I know there's others that feel the same out there or even worse obviously and having gone through everything you have, is there something you would say something you would tell those people that feel that way? Something, I mean, you kind of already told me before we started here, but um, is there, would you say the same thing or anything different to those people?
1: Well, what, what, what I thought about that, because I feel like, again, with what I say, words can be used to heal, you know, like they always say the pen is mightier than the sword. So what came to me when I was reflecting on this is that all life is significant. All have great purpose to fulfill and all are worthy of God's love and light. Each human life is part of the great plan. Each has a piece of the grand mosaic. Every human being has a soul and your human form is the vessel that houses that soul. Mm -hmm. It's the temple and foundation on, on which you enrich Your relationship with the God, the divine, the great spirit, or whatever name defines its present. But I think the most important thing that I could say, again, relates back to that fear and trust. I think if we begin to trust that the divine is always present
0: within
1: and really reflect on that, then you will be able to understand how significant you are in the greater plan we're all significant. We're here to teach. We're here to learn. We're here to make mistakes. We're here to evolve. I mean, look at us right now in the middle of COVID and in one of the worst political exchanges we've seen and everything we're dealing with, I thought we dealt with in the 1960s. And here we are again, you know, and I'm not getting political what I'm saying. We're in the middle of evolution, So, we all continue to evolve personally, and the human race continues to evolve. And I'll leave it to your audience decide whether it's good, bad, or ugly, whatever that is. I'm not taking a stand on that. What I'm saying is that if we begin to trust that each of us brings something significant to the world in our small family and in the larger picture, you never know how you're going to affect somebody with that part and that role you play in life. So I don't think anyone's insignificant. I think we're all significant. It's just up to us to figure out what it is.
0: So you wrote a book called In the Shadow of a Badge. Can you give us a brief on on what that
1: one's about? Yeah, I was lucky. Again, Divine Intervention, Hey, help! picked up both the books and published them. And so that that was a great thing. Um, gave me an, a big platform of which the first book in The Shadow of the Badge is all about Flight 93, mm-hmm. what transpired and The Angelic Encounter. And I say that's God's book. I just chant yeah. the story. And the second book, The White Light of Grace, is all about my personal story and about all the flawed things I did in my life and the lessons I learned with each Um, so it's kinda, I'd originally wanted to title it my life in black and white with a smidgen of blue, but they didn't like that title. That's kind of still how I look at it. a Life that was in black and white, like what's on paper and then the blue for the law enforcement. So, yeah. and then, um, I, I have my first fiction book is going to come out and I'm going to self publish it. So, um, do you mind if I, if I talk about that too? Oh yeah. Get some hype going here. Yeah, well, I'm in the middle of writing a book. I'm titling it Pause, and it's about my healing in the time of COVID. So, that one, I don't know when that'll be done. But um, the first fiction book, I'm just going to self publish on Amazon, and um, it'll launch, uh, hopefully, December 1st. And it's about a police officer that's Pittsburgh police officer that's educated in the field of psychology. She has her master's in it. And as she begins her career, she learns that she has intuitive gifts. And her grandmother shares with her the origins of the gifts are ancestral. At the birth of Christ in the manger, the first female ancestor was gifted for her reverence to the baby in the manger. So it's a um, lot of history studying went with it, and I'm excited about it. Very cool. Um, it's my first full fiction. I've never, I've had a couple people read it, and they said it's a good storyline. So we'll see what happens. the The fiction book is titled "The Blue Witch." Within the Blue
0: Witch within, mm-hmm.
1: because that's what my. The guys, I use that because when you know when you're on duty, you almost get like a sixth sense that something's going to happen, and I would tell the guys, "Oh, something's coming," and it never failed that it right before change of shift, some something would the shit would hit the fan. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And they would call me the blue witch. There she went, the blue witch again. <laughs> you know,
0: so. Yours is cooler than mine. I was shit magnet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But sometimes they called me Mother Teresa in uniform when I would help like somebody that they didn't think I should help, but that's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm in good company. I'll take the witch and the the saint. That's probably like, most of us have, I, I would accept that I have that personality. I could be the witch or the saints <laughs> uh, on occasion. So
0: that's awesome. Thanks for sharing about the books and and just everything else thank you for being so open and and honest and just being you and being here today it's a, truly a privilege of mine i'm i mean i joined every second of this conversation i'm honored to have to have met you and now have another ally on my team essentially
1: well me too kiddo and like i told shared with you earlier you have a new friend somebody old enough to be your mom and then summon <laughs> and can relate implicitly okay
0: Sounds good. It's Lily Leonardi, In the Shadow of a Badge, The White Light of Grace. Those are two books that are out right now. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you heard something that inspired you and that you continue to tune in. Feel free to reach out to me on social media or by email. Also, if you're in a position to donate, I have a Patreon account set up to support this podcast and the community behind it. Whatever you're going through and whatever your situation is, stay in the fight.